The spirit of performance is what defines Acura. And now, it's electric. Introducing the ZDX, Acura's most powerful SUV yet. Crafted using the same formula that brought them electrified supercars and multiple IMSA championships, the ZDX has track-tested performance that packs an energy all its own. Unlock the energy and order yours at Acura.com. What makes a life a good one? Is it the adventure you have? Or the friends you find along the way? Maybe it's pursuing your passion while striving to protect, defend, and save what you believe in every single day. So what makes a life a good one? In the Coast Guard, we think it's all of the above and more. But you'll have to find out for yourself. Visit GoCoastGuard.com to learn more. What's up, everybody? Welcome into another episode of Equal Play. I'm your host, Annie Costable, and man, are we rolling. Episode 13 is coming up. But before we get to that, I just want to take a quick second to thank all of our listeners. Thank you for subscribing, downloading, and of course, listening to Equal Play. I appreciate you so much more than you know. This week, we're doing things a little bit different. The gems are just too good, so we're getting right into our conversation with this week's guest, Minnesota Vikings reporter for ESPN and great friend, Courtney Cronin. Courtney Cronin, the one and only, and also fellow Chicagoan. So Courtney, thank you for coming on Equal Play. Thank you for having me. I was wondering where my invite was. I saw this podcast start up a little bit ago and I've been following along and, and listening along and I'm like, damn, when am I going to get my invite? So I'm, thank you for having me. I mean, for real, I've been planning, like waiting for the perfect time to invite you on. Courtney, for those of you who don't know, is extremely busy, like nonstop worker. So I was like, I got to wait for my perfect time. And also for those of you that don't know, Courtney and I are very connected. Our yes. roots take us back to Mississippi. Mm-hmm. We're for sure going to get into uh, everything Mississippi football and in our time, both of us at uh, the Clarion Ledger. But first things first, I want to start with the Super Bowl. Obviously, you're the Vikings reporter, but I want to know from your perspective, if you were covering the Bucks last night, what would have been your story? And if you were covering the Chiefs, what would have been your story? Well, shoot. I mean, with the Bucks, I feel like that whole thing wrote itself last free agency where you have a team that had a ton of pieces in place. Um, it had a coaching staff. It had, you know, all of the pieces you needed on offense and right. really, really a homegrown roster. Like they did their due diligence in the draft the last couple of years. So it's like you have the it's the one time the missing piece article our, uh, co- uh, conversation actually makes sense. Like you can actually say Tom Brady was the missing piece between that team and a Super Bowl. Right. So, you know, the thoughts that were running through my head were like, how did this team go from seven and nine, you know, a perennial playoff loser or a team that barely even got into the playoffs, um, have barely been in it. I mean, he, they broke the, they had the NFL's longest streak for uh, a playoff drought next to the Browns this year. Right. Um, for active streaks. And you bring a quarterback in who truly is the greatest of all time. And they win in that fashion. But it's certainly, I mean, it's a player's league. You know, Tom Brady 100% deserves the MVP yesterday and he got it. But like, uh-huh. 
the defensive game plan that Todd Bowles had after Tyreek Hill just like ripped the shreds out of them week 12 mm-hmm. for, for him to have the performance where they hold the chiefs to, you know, I think it might've been a season low in scoring for them. I'm fairly certain it was uh, that defense is no joke. I mean, that pass rush up front is so good. So it's Brady. It's, it's a stout, stout defense. I mean, it all was literally the perfect mix that made that team as good as they were. And I think for the chiefs, you know, you know, an offensive line, in my opinion, because this is like something that we talk about with the Vikings all the time, because a lot of Vikings fans get, you know, angsty when you talk about the offensive line, because mm-hmm. they just has it. They, they've had a very average offensive line and sometimes really bad offensive line. Right. And when you saw what happened when they're without their two top tackles last night, it shows you offensive lines are important, but they didn't get to the Super Bowl behind that offensive line. They got to Super Bowl behind Patrick Mahomes and you know, their defense did them absolutely no favors last night. You can say what you want about the officiating, but um, the defense looks shook. Like they really did from, from the very first uh, series uh, you know, when Tampa Bay goes three and out, they still did not look very good. Right. Um, there could be a number of reasons behind that. Like obviously the news that, you know, came down last week with, with Britt Reed, the, off, uh, outside linebackers coach who got in the accident, the little five-year-old girls in critical condition still like there were the distractions. More, yes. Like the more I've thought about that, I'm like, how the hell could you have coached that game? If you're Andy Reed, like your son could potentially be in a lot of trouble. Um, and there's a five-year-old who is fighting for her life right now. Like for that to happen. I mean, and I mean, I'm not saying that that's the reason behind it. Maybe we'll find out, you know, down the line, like, yeah, players are completely shook, but like I've covered things like that before where tragedy or something just insane happens um, before a game and players, of course, in the moment, be like, no, no, we just, you know, they, we got beat by the better team. And then you find it later. Like, yeah, people are shook. Like, right. People are, you know, not doing so good mentally uh, right. from stuff like that. So, I mean, I think a lot of it would have been just like, wow, chiefs got, not just humbled. I mean, but Mahomes is not the reason they lost that game. Like, no, you know, they, they looked human for a change. Right. So then to that answer, what impressed you more from the bucks, the offense or the defense and for the chiefs, what disappointed you more, the offensive performance or the defense's inability to stop Tom Brady and the bucks? Yeah. I, I think for, for the bucks, I mean, we knew Brady was going to be really good, but I mean, Gronk catching two touchdowns last night, that was incredible. I mean, that's like such a good, an awesome story for him to be in retirement and then Brady call him out of retirement and come catch two right. touchdowns in the Super Bowl. I think it was a defense, really. Like, what Tom Brady did stands on its own, but that defense, I saw that defense when they played the Vikings in week 15, week 14 or 15. Um, and, you know, they were they're really good. Uh, But like to see them at this level, like that was just remarkable. Um, And I guess for the chiefs, like, I mean, their defense really let them down, but like, that's kind of been their Achilles heel the last couple of years. Defense can either be their defense. Their secondary has always been very suspect. They can either be really good or really not so good. So um, that's the way that I look at it. Um, I mean, Mahomes did, I mean, he made crazy throws last night. I know. I know. It sucks for him that he didn't get a, you know, you felt like he wasn't on the field a lot, which I, I definitely take a look at time of possession, but that definitely felt like the Brady and the offense show because the, just the way the Bucks were like forcing the Chiefs off the field so frequently. Right. Um, and also, I mean, but like Chiefs players dropped a lot of passes. Like 100% let's not, let, they like, did. Let's not forget that part. They were like dropping pa- passes that Travis Kelsey normally makes. Right. Um, 
dropped left and right, which is just kind of like, oh, and then his, his energy too afterwards, like acting so dejected when they were still in the game. I mean, to start the second half, they were still in the game and he drops a pass and acts like, like it's over. And, and again, I think it goes to a lot of distractions. There was a lot going on behind the scenes, but um, mm-hmm. yeah, it just wasn't what I think fans expected this Super Bowl matchup to be. But this conversation here today is about you, my friend. And to that note, I want to go back to the very beginning. Growing up in Illinois, obviously, we are a spoiled sports town. We are just privileged to grow up with the teams that we grew up with. But for you, where did this dream of covering sports come from? Did you, from the very beginning, want to get into sports journalism? Like, what's the story behind your career? Yeah. So when I was in high school, I went to Glenbrook South High School in Glenview. And I just was really fortunate to be at a school where there was like a little bit of everything for everybody. You didn't have to like I did so many activities in high school. I danced. I played soccer um, and I wasn't good at soccer. Like I just wasn't. And I got my, I had a lot of concussions. So my mom made me stop. And that's when I really focused on radio. Like I was exposed to sports talk radio at a young age. And that's kind of a big part of what I do now, but being like 14 or 15 years old and getting a chance to like play, play radio, essentially. Um, you know, during the day I was a, one of my activities, it was an elective that I took for four years that I, at, um, Glenbrook South high school, Dan Oswald, my professor, um, you know, is the reason that I got into this industry is part of the reason why I went to Indiana. Um, I was exposed to it so young, it's kind of like I knew I had a taste early and nothing could throw me off that scent. Like I wanted to do this. I grew up in a place where, you know, I'm constantly listening to, you know, uh, ESPN radio or the score, like, you know, and I know there are obviously no women voices on those uh, radio stations for so long. And even still today, uh, there's not that many, Um, which, you know, kind of gave me the desire to change that. And, and I wanted to get into, I mean, I always, you know, radio, it's kind of wild, the, the trajectory my career has taken. Um, I've done a little bit of everything. And right. I was just speaking with a journalism class at my alma mater at IU. And I think that's the biggest thing I can preach to kids, like, you know, students who are, you know, 10 years younger than me, that mm. you have to do a little bit of everything. Like you have to, like truly multimedia is the way that this thing's going. Of course, be a good writer, like know how to write, but that doesn't mean it's just going to be for print. That means it's going to be for a podcast script or for um, another piece of content. Like, I think that we've really gotten past the point of like, okay, you are just pigeonholed into being this, you are just going to be this. And, you know, for me, um, I just, I, I just got exposed to it really early and that, I just never wanted to do anything else. And and even still, like all these years later, I don't want to do anything else. I love this. I love the NFL covering the NFL has been, and I've I've been doing it full time for four years, but I've been doing it for six. If you include my time out in the Bay area where I was doing a bunch of other stuff too, but I really enjoy it. And I love the fact that I get to cover it from so many different angles and platforms. And that really all started in high school for me back, you know, I was at Glenbrook South 04 to 08. Um, and then I went to Indiana, uh, to pursue my, uh, degree in journalism. Oh, so glad you're on right now because I just have so many real ass questions for you (laughs) that I feel like we'll be able to really dive into. But first thing I have to ask after hearing that from you is 
you know, growing up in Illinois, you mentioned we had no shortage of of reporters, top-notch reporters mm-hmm. to follow and teams to follow. But there weren't a ton of women, at least for me, that I remember mm-hmm. seeing at a young age. So for you, do you remember the first woman you saw in sports that you really looked up to, whether it was a coach, an athlete, or a journalist that you saw yourself in, or or did that not come until later? I think it's probably Peggy Kaczynski. Yeah. Um, I think, you know, just for, for her... Um, being one of the few female voices and, and women that you see on TV. Um, I, you know, she's been, she's been doing this for a while. Um, mm-hmm. and, and that the thing for me at least was, you know, there's so many women that I was like looking at, you know, who are, who are the pioneers in this field? And I mean, it really didn't hit me until I got much older because, um, you know, growing up, you're right. Like there just not, there were not in like the late nineties, early two thousands, there just weren't a lot of women on TV covering teams, the whole thing in Chicago. Right. Um, and then obviously in Mississippi, you know, like we were the only ones, like it was, it's still like that, but it didn't really dawn on me, um, about like having women mentors in this field until I was out in the Bay area. Um, Ann Killian is a longtime sports columnist at the San Francisco Chronicle. Um, and Janie McCauley who covers baseball, like nobody's business. Um, and she covers you know, a little bit, literally everything warriors. It's kind of where I spent a lot more of my time around her. Those two, I was like, okay, you guys are adults, your moms, so you can have it all because I was always under the impression in this field that it's either you choose the career path and you grind and you do all that and you can't have a family, you can't have kids. That was, you know, I was 25 when I when I met them and I moved out there. So that was my first time actually being like, oh, wait, you can because I had never seen examples of it. I think that, you know, obviously representation is the greatest thing that, you know, teaches us about, hey, someone who looks like me, someone who sounds like me, uh, ha- comes from the same or different background, but like, when you see it, you have a better time believing it. So I think, you know, even at 25 years old, that you kind of think, okay, you're, you're grown up enough to have seen this before. Well, no, you, you not in this field. So for me, like I always, whenever I'm asked about like, who did you look up to? I mean, and even still like, um, you know, those two are in, you know, a top market in, in the Bay area and they crush it. And I just, I've always, I've always felt like they've kind of been like my, you know, my guiding light in a lot of ways. And, and I've had a ton of really good male colleagues who are certainly mentors and, you know, friends and, you know, people I, you know, complain and cry and, and, you know, celebrate with nonetheless. But like for women, I think there's just, you know, being able to see that you can do it and that somebody, you know, the women who were fighting to get in locker rooms years ago, um, like that, seeing how far we've come, but how far we have to go. But like hearing like basically the war stories of like, oh, um, you know, that's how, that's how we got here. Like right. you got to kind of honor your past and, and honor those who came before you because they laid the groundwork for all of us. I agree. I mean, I remember growing up and it wasn't that I saw a woman in, in this field and was like, oh, I want to be like her. I just loved sports and I loved talking. I loved learning from different people. And I was like, oh, I could turn this into a journalism career. And it wasn't until I got into the business that I found women who became mentors. And honestly, they were a lot of times my friends. Like I don't have a ton of older 
women who have mentored me, it's been friends like you or or friends Mm -hmm. in Chicago who we've, we've established this bond that, you know, when, when shit's going sideways, you're like, okay, let me call Courtney or let me call so-and-so and see if this is, this is normal or how I should handle this situation. So it just really creates an energy now that you want to be that mentor. You want to encourage that confidence. You want to send all these little notes and tricks of the trade that you've learned all along the way to um, the women coming up. And so to that point, I wonder for you, where early on in your career did you get the confidence to march into these locker rooms, march into these situations and know, Hey, I'm a woman, but I know football better than you, 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 and you, especially Mm -hmm. given the fact that you were learning all of this in Mississippi, which as you said, is a predominantly male sports field. Yeah, no, absolutely. I think, a lot of it comes from doing the work, from grinding, from putting your head down for a couple months and looking up and being like, damn, like I, you know, I did all that. Like I covered this, I have the work to show for it. And, and not, you know, not being arrogant, not being, you know, letting your work speak for itself. Like I didn't walk into places that, you know, I didn't know, or, you know, were coming in for the first time and acted like I knew it all you have to be able to open your ears and shut your mouth and listen. Like listening is the greatest skill I think anybody can have. Um, and, and listening, not just for what you're listening for, what you think you're supposed to hear, but like absorbing. Um, you know, I, I definitely, when I was in Mississippi, you know, that was 2013 to 16, early Mm -hmm. 16, And even then, I mean, like the job that I started there when I was cultivating their sports video platform in 2013, like I didn't have any guidance on that. Like they hired me like because Gannett was like exploring video and like they were like, yeah, like, you know, basically here's a blank canvas. Go for it. And I did. And it was definitely tough because I felt like I didn't have anybody to lean on. Um, and I think in those moments, because, you know, I was working with newspaper writers, like right. they think anything, you know, at that point, like they see video, they're like, oh, wow, this is great. And be- it could be awful, but like, <laughs> because it was so new, new, so new and so foreign to them, they were like, yeah, this is awesome. But, um, I think in those moments too, it kind of helps you go inward and really rely on yourself and trust yourself that you're doing the right thing when you don't have the people to lean on necessarily in terms right. of the expertise, I mean, for support, sure. But like, you know did I make the right call? Like in this story, uh, does this make sense? You know, because, you know, a lot of that stuff that I did in Mississippi, especially video was a self edit. Uh, we didn't really have an editing process where, you know, I did this feature, this, uh, three-year doc, which you know about beyond the game, um, that focused on a number one basketball player in the country. His name was Malik Newman. Like, that was a lot of self-editing because we didn't have the process at my, at the clarion ledger of being like, let's all sit down and watch this and then send notes out and like go through the peer editing uh, review process that happened very, 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 very few times, if at all. I mean, I feel like I remember like early on, we, they might've looked, I had an editor, maybe look at like one or two things, but that was a lot of like me having to, you know, be like, okay, I know this story. Am I telling it well enough? Because you just didn't have, it wasn't a normal editing process because it was such a newspaper driven thing. They didn't have a video team. I was the video team. So I mean, like, I think 
those are the things that taught me to be really independent in this field and know that like, you're not going to get your hand held through everything. Um, very fortunate now at ESPN.com that like, I have a great editor on the digital side who like reads my stuff, edits my stuff, makes sure it makes sure that it's, you know, capable of being on a website if it's not like a hot mess. But, um, I didn't have that early on. And so that to me was like, it taught me to kind of, you have to get it, you know, you have to get it how, however you can. And sometimes that means relying on yourself for being like the editor and the content creator, which which is tough. That's a big ask for anybody. Yeah. But I, that's how I learned. I will say, I think there's a lot of power and confidence that comes from going through um, experiences like that, where you're, you have a hand in everything that you're like, yo, who can mess with me? Like I'm doing, I'm doing video, I'm writing, I'm ranking these teams, I'm ranking these mm-hmm. athletes, like step to me, bro. I don't like, I, I am doing this. There's confidence mm-hmm. that, that definitely comes from, you know, being a multifaceted journalist. But before we get further into your uh, stop in Mississippi, you were at the NCAA first, wasn't it? Yeah. I had a- I had a post-grad internship coming out of college in 2012. That was, I was there 10 months. It was a 12 month program. And most of the people that were in my group, there were 17 or 18 of us, you know, working in compliance, working in academic membership affairs, legal um, championships. I was in digital communications and the job that I had there was, um, you know, storytelling It's storytelling from a different perspective. I wasn't a journalist, uh, you know, like a newspaper, a television station. I was, you know, given a really good opportunity to cover college athletics from, you know, a different perspective. And, and I was a little, I mean, at the time I tell the story all the time. Like, I feel like I applied to like 50 jobs, like for MMJ, uh, weekend sports anchor, the whole thing. And nobody ever called me back. Like, and I was like, well, you know, this sucks. I thought, you know, I went into college with the radio background, but I thought I was going to be on TV. I thought that's what I wanted to do. Uh-huh. And honestly, thank God, like that I would have burned out. Like I would have, I couldn't do that. I mean, I think most of my friends that were in local TV have burned out at some point if you haven't made it by this age. Right. You know, so I, uh, I definitely think that, you know, that internship, was maybe one of the best things I ever did. Even though at the time when you're like right out of college, you're like, shit, I've got to get a job. I've got to get like a real job. Cause there is still the word intern attached to that. But as I found out working in the NFL, like if you want to work in the NFL, if you want to work in a front office, if you want to work in a PR department, if you want to work in personnel, if you want to work in anything, coaching, whatever you graduate college and you're an intern for three or four years before you get like a real job title. Mm-hmm. And I felt like it was the same thing at the NCAA. Um, I never, I, ne- I never wanted to stay there. That was not my goal, but like, that was a unbelievable launch point for me in my career to go to Mississippi because at that point I was like, I have nothing to lose. Right. Like I had no, I, I didn't even blink twice when I accepted that offer at the Clarion Ledger to go because it was, it was the right fit and it worked perfectly for me because I, I knew that that was going to be I had a blank canvas. I could do whatever I wanted. And I didn't think I'd stay there almost three years, but I did. And it, you know, was the best thing that I could have done. Right. I can attest to that. The Clarion Ledger certainly changed my life in more ways than one, Mm -hmm. but 
Before we get into the Clarion Ledger, you know, you talked about being a multimedia journalist and that's the direction that the industry is going. And I could not agree more with you. My career has been the same and I've been so proud and privileged to have a hand in all these different areas of the business, video, writing, radio, you name it. I, I feel confident that I could do it. And I know you feel the same way. But I wonder for you, did you have a desire to do that? Or did you feel like as a woman, you had to make yourself indispensable and learn all these different trades in order to, you know, get a job? Yeah, I think that it's definitely drilled into you. The more you can do, the more profitable and marketable you will be and attractive as a candidate. But I don't know, for me, like when I went to Indiana, it was a print school. Uh-huh. obviously now it's completely different and it's, there's so much better for it. But like, I, always, I, I never thought I was going to be a writer. And when you think about it, technically writing is technically my primary job as a beat writer uh, covering an NFL team. But like, I always thought I was going to be doing a broadcast medium, whether it was radio, whether it was TV. Mm-hmm. Um, so I, I you know, there, there's, that's two different things that I kind of sought out to do. I didn't do much writing in college. I really didn't, which is why I was kind of, you know, I, I always tell people, I learned how to be a writer when I was technically a professional journalist. Like Mm -hmm. I never did it in college. Like I never, I couldn't tell you what AP style was in college or how to write a concrete lead or, you know, I would be curious if I could ever find it, any of my college work, just to see how terrible it was because (laughs) I never got that instruction. Like I never got any of it. And so, um, I know, I know now, and I preach now to the younger generation that if you want to do this for real, you can't just be somebody that they can't call on for TV. Be like, oh, that person gets nervous or terrible on camera, whatever. They're a good writer. Let's keep them around for this. Like you have to be able to do a little bit of everything. Um, and that's just so critical. And I think for women, you know, it's probably even more so for us just because, you know, I do think we are making a lot of progress in newsrooms and changing the way that they look around the country. Um, and I say newsroom, not just like as newspapers, but like television stations, radio stations, um, you know, digital platforms, digital entities, but look around, there's still like so much work to be done. Uh Um, what did I, what did I hear recently in Chicago that like the, there's, I don't know her name, but I know I saw something that the score hired their first female full-time host midday. Layla Rahimi was at NBC Sports, which used to be Comcast Sportsnet. And yeah, was hired by 670 The Score. And she was the first woman hired midday. And I mean, you talked about it at the beginning of this episode, but there's, there's a lack of representation in radio specifically for women in Chicago. And that's, it's really odd. It's, it's really disheartening. And I'm saying this, I interned at ESPN 1000. I Mm -hmm. loved my time there. I felt totally welcome. I loved Waddle and Sylvie learned so many valuable lessons, but when I look now, it's so discouraging to be a woman in sports in Chicago and see no women besides now Layla in sports radio. Yeah, it's wild. And I really hope that that we just got to keep pushing for it, keep pushing for change. Um, I host ESPN radio nationally. So if, if, if there's not programming on 1000, um, it'll pick up the national feed and there are a couple, couple people have there. I mean, obviously Sarah Spain has her own show, Spain right. fits on weeknights um, in, in shape, 
Shea Pepler Cornette and Jordan Cornette. Um, right. The Cornettes have their own show. Um, but other than that, I mean, weekend radio is, it's a rotating crew. I mean, Alyssa Lang, uh, she's on, um, myself, Katie George, uh, there still are so few women that have that permanent voice. I mean, ESPN's done a really good job elevating women into the analyst type role, but really that's only Mina Kimes when it comes to the NFL, right. um, more so than just being the facilitator and asking questions. I mean, Mina is a true analyst voice that they turn to. So um, we, we still have, again, it's great that we've made this progress so far, but we still have so much further to go. Um, and I think that that starts even at the local level. I mean, we talk about Chicago radio, like, you know, I'm, I'm, I told you I was home for the Super Bowl, and I went to the gym this morning and I listened to the score on my way there. And I was just like, you know, it's great. I love hearing these voices because these voices are home to me, but it's also like, it would be great to hear more women voices there. Um, especially during daytime hours, peak hours. Like you can, you can put anybody in, you know, weeknight, late night radio. That's great. It's an opportunity. I mean, I do a ton of weeknight radio and, and weekend radio, but I want to hear somebody on the, on like a drive time show, a woman that's not just, you know, who's been given her own show, not just part of the crew, not just part of like, um, you know, a four person rotation. I want to hear a woman pushing the conversation there. That's the next step I think that we need to take. 100%. And I think it's really important for, again, as we mentioned, young journalists coming into this business, as far as their confidence goes to see themselves in at the professional level. And I, I can speak for myself. My confidence level has been something that I've had to really pour into and really build on. There were certain places and spaces that I was like, Ooh, I don't know if I belong here. I don't know if, why would someone respect my voice? And it took a lot of effort to get rid of that voice in my head. And so as far as the younger generation goes, I think it's really important for them um, and their confidence to, to see that they belong in these places and spaces. And you know, to that point, you became the voice or a very prominent voice of high school football in Mississippi uh, during your time at the Clarion Ledger. And as we mentioned, it's an area that's dominated by men. Mm -hmm. And as again, I mentioned, I remember times when I was in that role, having to really psych myself up and remind myself that my voice matters. Mm -hmm. What I say is valuable just because I didn't play football doesn't mean I can't talk football. So for you, did you go into that job with confidence or did you have to build that? And also how long did it take for you to get to a point where you thought I, what I say goes, what I say matters, like I'm the professional respect it. Yeah, no, I think that I went into that job like wide eyed and just being like, it's an adventure. I'm excited because 22 years old. Like I, you know, this is the only like chance I had in journalism and I was gonna, you know, I was chomping at the bit for anything. So I went in just being like, all right, the world's my oyster, which at 22 you can do. You might not have that same sort of like jovial look at life of like, Oh, I can do whatever blank canvas at another age, but I was young. So I did that. And I had all these plans. I really did early on. And I kind of think I might've, um, you know, disrupted the status quo a little bit at the Clarion Ledger within the sports department. Um, so Rusty Hampton was the sports editor. I really wanted to work with him. 
Mm-hmm. I remember like coming down there and I find out like on my way down that he was retiring. And so I was mm-hmm. super bummed about that. He's a great dude. Um, but like, I, I knew I wasn't going to be able to work with him. So like some of the interim people, um, you know, I remember going in there and kind of them looking at me, the only woman, um, you know, in a sports department of guys being like, what's she doing here? Okay. Well, her, her stuff's going to be video. It's just going to be a complimentary. They felt threatened. Like that, that's straight up what it is. Um, I remember there was one time that it was ahead of, I, I, you know, I'd kind of been hearing some stuff behind my back and it was ahead of the SEC, SEC media days for football in Birmingham uh, or in Hoover in 2013. And I had come up with this big content plan of like how we were going to do it this year. And I remember um, assistant sports editor at the time who was filling in until they hired um Zach Craiglow, who was my sports editor in Mississippi after the you know, enti- mo- entirety of my career, pretty much. Um, only one I really worked with daily. But uh, this, this other person was kind of told um, the Mississippi State and Ole Miss beat writer, like, yeah, like we're going to send her whatever, but like, you know, we want you guys to be the talking heads on video, like, because they knew the teams, I guess. Like, they, I mean, I couldn't do my research or because whatever. I remember I was just, like, fed the bleep up at that point. Like, <laughs> I was just, like, so I went over to my executive editor being, like, hey, this shit keeps happening. Fix it or I'm going to a TV station. Fix it or I'm out. Because I had some leverage at that point because there were others, another TV station in Jackson that was reaching out to me. And I wasn't under contract. Right. So I was, like, you know what? Like, you're going to lose me before you really get a chance to use me and, and use all my, my assets that I'm bringing here. So tell these people to fix themselves because it's just, it was ridiculous. Cause they, you know, they're, they were maybe that if you would ask them, they would, they probably wouldn't say, Oh, I'm threatened. I'm threatened by she because she's a woman. No, I'm threatened by the fact that this is a new media that is being introduced. That's threatening my, you know, right. Legacy media, my newspaper, my, print product that's what that's what they were upset about so it's just like that's the thing that bothered me the most because i'm like you know get get on board or get lost because because this this is where it's going this is where it's going it's only thousand percent and it's like if you don't realize it now this is 2013 mind you so this was seven years seven eight years ago now Mm -hmm. like it was it was different market back then but like, we knew that this is where it was going. We knew that video was not just like this temporary thing. It was here to stay. Mm-hmm. So I think that kind of standing up for myself and biting back when I had to, because you don't want to come in guns blazing and telling people what's what and like all that stuff. Again, open your ears and shut your mouth. Like, listen, but like, you know, do not let people push you around. So I right. think for me, like I never had, you know, the patronizing thing. A lot of people assume that you go into Mississippi covering high school football and these coaches are going to be like, you know, misogynist and all this stuff. Frankly, I mean, they run into that like every once in a while. Sure. I don't really have any like super great examples I can give you more of the coaches where I felt empowered by somebody. I still talk to to this day who I know you adore too is John Perry from, from Pearl high school. Like I still like, I mean, we're, we follow each other on Twitter on Facebook and like, I'll just read some of, you know, his inspirational stuff that like gets me jacked. And like, even, I learned a lot about football from mm-hmm. those high school coaches that I was around because especially the ones that had talented kids at smaller schools, the ones who were being like heavily recruited. And then you have to adjust your entire football philosophy around this one talent because you, you're having that guy carry your entire team. Like I learned a lot about my, you know, very basic knowledge of, of the game and how it's evolved 
covering high school football in Mississippi, seeing wing T offenses, seeing stuff that doesn't exist at the level that I cover it at, at the NFL, but like the very basics, um, the core principles of football that exist everywhere. Right. So I honestly felt really empowered by a lot of the coaches that I was around. Cause it's like, you know, I'm not some demure presence. Like I'm from Chicago. Like I didn't, you know, I didn't come to Mississippi to screw around. Like I right. came here to like, to build my, to build my resume, to, to make a name for myself um, and to put out a damn good product in the, in the process. Cause one thing I really took pride in when I was a high school sports editor at the Clarion Ledger was the fact that we were a statewide operation. And, and sadly, I know that newspapers now, even the CL, um, they don't operate like that. Like, right. You know, I, I didn't care where the high school story was. I didn't care if it was in Pascagoula. I didn't care if it was up in South Haven, right. It's like polar opposite ends of the state. Right. It didn't have to be a Jackson Metro area story to get my attention. And fortunately, during the time that I was there, I was able to tell whatever story I wanted to. But one thing that you, you were talking about, and it, may, it just kept the, the phrase kept uh, popping up in my head is imposter syndrome. I gave a keynote speech on it a year ago to this uh, women. Uh, it's a, it was a women in sports media and uh, working in you know sports administration group in the Twin Cities called Wise. Um, they have a bunch of different chapters across the United States, but I. I gave that speech because I still feel like so many of us, like I've been covering the NFL now for six years. Yeah. Um, Like I have no qualms. I'll walk into, you know, Viking, if whenever we can go back to a locker room, um, I'll go in, I'll talk to anybody. I know everybody on that team. I know, you know, people I've done my research, I've done my homework, but we still are constantly questioning ourselves. Like, do we belong here? Did I say the right thing? Did I misspeak? Did I misstep? Um, and I don't know if men do the same thing. I mean, I'm sure everybody questions yourself. You want to feel worthy. You want to feel like you didn't ask a stupid question. Um, it certainly sucks when you, you can have 99, 99 positive compliments. And then there's that one asshole on Twitter who makes you feel like you're a piece of shit. Yeah. That you did something wrong. Um, and they in get your in your head. head, they get under your skin. Yeah. It sucks. And that, that's where the imposter syndrome kicks in. Like, damn, did I, do I not know what I'm talking about? Do I not belong here? I will fight that probably till the day I die. I think we all will. Um, and that's, that's something for me that you, when you talk about like your, your tribe essentially in, in journalism, like for me, the people I'm talking to daily in this field are like some of my closest girlfriends. Um, you know, I've got my group chat with my, you know, two of my closest friends, Kat Terrell and Sarah Barshop. Kat covers the, Saints for the athletics. She used to cover the Bengals. That's how well, for ESPN. Um, and, and Sarah Barshop covers the Texans for ESPN. Mm-hmm. Like we are constantly texting and BSing just about everything, not just the industry. I mean, it's, it's straight up friends. Like, but they're the people I lean on first and foremost, if I have a journalism query or if I, you know, need something I'll call, I know that I have a million people um, it's hyperbole, but like, there are a lot of people I can reach out to that help you knowing that like, Dan, they're going through the same thing. I mean, I do this thing at the combine every year. Um, can't do it this year, hoping to do it virtually, but I organize a happy hour for women at the NFL combine. We just call it women at the NFL combine happy hour. Um, and it's a space of journalists, uh, team reporters, agents, people work for teams, um, anybody, uh, we get them together in the same space and it's a safe space and you can talk 
and you can be like, oh, you went through that too? Like, oh, how did you navigate that situation? Like that allyship cannot be understated. That is the most important thing that you can have in this industry. And of course, again, I have a lot of male allies. Some of my closest confidants are in friends are guys in this industry, um, like who have helped me through, who have been my compass, but Mm -hmm. you cannot replace what you get from your sisterhood in this business. Um, that's, it's invaluable to, to combating that feeling of, do I belong here? Am I quite, why don't I constantly question myself? You know, you bring up something funny, just the fact that when you got to Mississippi, you, you had this energy and coaches, you know, I'm sure fans to readers picked up on it real quick. You were from Chicago. You did not come in with a demure attitude. And I owe a lot of gratitude to you because when I got there, my presence was equally understood. Like people kept calling me the new Courtney Cronin (laughs) everywhere I went. Uh, coaches were like, oh, she's just like Courtney. She even talks like Courtney. Like they act like like each other. It was so funny. So, you know, you paved the way, even though we're we're similar in age, I mean, we're separated, Mm -hmm. I think by a year, you helped pave the way for me then to go in there and follow in your footsteps in terms of the video work you were doing, the respect you were earned and owed. And again, the content that you were created, creating the innovative content you were creating. So to that point, I wonder what your advice is for young journalists coming into a place or space where they're not getting much direction and mm-hmm. it's, it's an open book to create what they want. I mean, yeah. you, you did it with Malik Newman. You created mm-hmm. this docu-series, which was phenomenal. You helped me then go to Mississippi and create a video series game week. It's like, so what is your advice for young journalists and specifically young women coming into a space where it's an open book to do what they want? Yeah. I think the biggest thing people need to do at any age, but particularly young, particularly young journalists, don't view your people who are your counterparts as competition. I mean, certainly they are To If you're breaking news, I understand that. Learn from people. Mm-hmm. read other people's stuff, see what other people are doing. You know, we are a copycat league, just like the NFL, just like the NBA, just like other leagues uh, in sports, you know, find the people, people whose work you like and try to emulate some of that. Try to try to come up with ideas that, um, you know, certainly are original, but like, where did you get the inspiration from? The inspiration for beyond the game was from hoop dreams different story, different premise, but it was same, same idea. Yeah. Um, and so I think that that's kind of the blessing and the curse because more and more, you know, you don't have five editors looking over your stuff. Like, you know, in the Bay area, I was lucky a lot of times, if anything that I wrote for the web, um, was edited at all, because mm-hmm. if it went straight to web, it usually kind of just went up and then sometimes somebody would back read it, but it was never, um, you know, if it was different if it, went, if it was going in the print product. It would have multiple eyes on it. Web, they viewed differently. Um, you're going to run into that as a young journalist. And it's the confidence to keep going, even if you feel like you're flapping in the breeze to know, okay, I'm coming up with clips. I am coming up with my portfolio. I'm building something here. I'm not going to be in the spot forever. Because you never typically are with your first job. Um, but, like, using that experience 
screw up a little bit. There's plenty of things that I did that I'd be like, yeah, it probably wasn't a great idea. It was probably a stupid story or, you know, I probably put too much time and effort into something that nobody wanted to read or nobody wanted to do, but like learning what works, learning what doesn't, learning what you're good at, learning what you're not. So, I mean, it's a lot. And I just, I think that's why I say, you know, at that age, 22 to 25, when I was down there, um, I said yes to everything, Mm. no to very little. And I just kind of was an open, I was, I was, I was a sponge. I wanted to learn everything. I Mm. wanted to do everything. I wanted to have my hand in a million different pots and I wanted to expand, you know, I wanted to know everybody. I I didn't want to feel like an outsider. So I think the best way you do that is by working and getting Mm. to know people. Um, so, you know, I think it's a blessing that in a place like that, like, you know, people also always ask me about, well, your path is different than somebody else's path who might've started at the New York times in like, you know, whatever role, like if, if you know, there are people who do internships with USA Today and then they latch on and they stay with USA Today their whole career. Like I would be nothing in this industry if I didn't know how to keep my own stats at a, at a high school football or basketball game. If I didn't know how to write on deadline off a hot spot or oh stealing, my God. stealing Wi-Fi. Yeah, stealing Wi-Fi from McDonald's. Oh like, my God, Callaway. Every yeah. time I went to Callaway, like if my phone went out, I was mm-hmm. screwed. Or if the McDonald's was closed, I was screwed. Shout yeah. out to Callaway, by the way. Yeah, no, I mean, it's, um, those are the things that teach you. Like there's no one, there's no right path to get to where you want right. in this business. Like some people are content covering high schools their whole life. Mm-hmm. Um, and that's great. You know, for me, I always thought there was something bigger for me out there. Um, and it's not just, you know, the sports itself. It's, it's life. It's wanting to live in a lot of different places. I've lived in Chicago, Indianapolis, um, Jackson, Mississippi, the Bay Area, and Minneapolis now. Like, that's, um, that's a lot of different places. I've done everything but the East Coast. And, you know, that was always a goal for me. Like, I want to know people who don't look like me, who don't come from the same background, who who have a lot of experiences that they can teach me about and vice versa. Um, so, you know, when you're going into this, like realize that your path is not going to look identical to someone else's nor should it like, you know, I'm thankful, grateful that I got to cover high school sports and recruiting because that that's where I cut my teeth. Like if I, if I started out covering pro sports, I don't, I don't know what that would have meant for my career. I mean, yeah, expedites all the, the earlier steps, but I felt fortunate that, I got to build, like, I got to learn how to be a journalist for real. My first like real journalism job. I got to do that in a place that, you know, covering athletes that are not that much younger than you and being able to, to do it on a level where that's what people want to read. It's not like you're covering high school sports at a place like Chicago where, you know, it's not a, you know, they're not, they're never going to be like the number one thing in town, but as you know, right. in Mississippi, High school sports are everything. everything. Like some, that's that's everything. Like that's right. the number one thing people want to read on Saturday morning, be, you know, with Ole Miss and Mississippi State preview content for football. So doing it in a place where it is number. universally beloved and it's number one, I don't think you can beat that. Like, and yeah, some people might say, "Oh, well, why would you want to cover high school sports in a place like that?" Like, or even you know, turn their nose up to high school sports. I I think the most rewarding part of my career so far, and I've been doing this for about ten years has been my, was my time in Mississippi that made me into into who I am today. It taught me how to like scrap. It taught me how to be resourceful. Um, and more than just like my job, just like my life down there, like making friends, living a long way away from home. 
Like, I don't think I would have been comfortable moving to California, like 2,600 miles away from my mom and my dad, had I not done Jackson first. Like, and that was, that was a huge stepping stone for me. I'm very, very proud of that work that I did there. Just to echo what you said about everyone's career looking different. I cannot reiterate that enough for any young journalist who's listening right now, because Mm -hmm. I think a lot of people get it in their head and I was guilty of this. I mean, early in my career, I was committed to the broadcasting side of things. Mm -hmm. And I thought after hearing no from all these MMJ reporter positions I applied to, I was like, okay, maybe I'll just make it happen in Chicago. And after freelancing for what seemed like forever, I remember you and I got coffee and I was like, picking your brain about your career, where you started, where you're headed, all of these things. And it, it, it was like God's timing. A month later, I found out I got the job in Mississippi and I was 26 when I headed to Mississippi. And in a lot of people's heads, they were like, why are you leaving Comcast to move to Mississippi? Yeah to pursue this career. You're, you're already making it happen in Chicago. Why would you leave? And so I think it's very important that everyone remind themselves that your career is not going to look like Courtney Cronin. Your career is not going to look like, you know, Samantha Steele or Sam Ponder. Your career is not going to look like whoever it's going to look how it's meant to look for you. And as long as you're committed to the journey and wherever it takes you, you know, success will come your way. But to that point, you know, you went from Mississippi to the Bay Area and then from the Bay Area to Minnesota. And in both of these transitions in your career, you were contemplating multiple next steps. Let me go Mm -hmm. right. Let me go left. And I know this just from our conversations off the record of, of different opportunities you had presented to yourself. Yep. So what advice do you have for young aspiring anything when that fork in the road appears and you're trying to figure out what the next step is? Yeah. I've never been somebody who's like, here's my 10 year plan. Um, I want to be here by the time I'm this age. Mm-hmm. Like I never, I never looked at it that way. Cause I was, I always thought I never, I never even had like a time limit of, I want to be in Mississippi for this many years. I want to be in California for this many years. I mean, shit, like the place where I'm at right now, it's the longest I've ever actually been somewhere. I just covered yeah. my fourth season, which is wild to me because I felt like I was in Mississippi for a decade. I was there for not even a, th- a full three years. I packed a lot into, you know, not even a full three years there. I was in the Bay area for 17 months. I, and I felt like I packed like a ton more into that than 17 months. So when I got the opportunity to come to ESPN, I actually had like a contract in hand, was ready to sign it to go to the athletic. And I was going to be a managing editor there. Um, when this was before the athletic, like had their massive explosion where they showed up everywhere, like starting in 2017, they were crushing it. Like they, started out with the athletic Bay area. Cause there were a couple sites that were like these, um, beta sites for them. And then they just exploded into like every network, every, every city had one, every team had one, right. um, a reporter, but I was getting ready to go to with a few of my colleagues, Tim Kawakami, Marcus Thompson, and Anthony Slater. They were very heavy on warriors coverage. Um, we were going to all go the four of us to the, um, Bay area athletic and, the day that I was going to turn my contract in, um, 
I had a lawyer look over it. I spent, spent a bunch of money on that. Like I was literally ready to go. I got a call or get an email from somebody at ESPN who had asked me like, Hey, I don't know what you're doing. Um, we have an opening and this was the end of July in 2017. I was like, I still remember you texting me and being like, okay, I have this interview at ESPN now. <laughs> and like, like your mind was racing. I remember yeah. like what, I don't need, you were like figuring it out. Yeah. It was the biggest jump I've ever made. And I just remember telling myself, like I consulted with everybody. So that's one thing that you do. I think when you're in that spot where it's like, you come to the fork in the road, talk to everybody, get a million opinions, whether you believe them or not. Like, you know, sometimes people talk to people to justify what they want to do. Or sometimes it's like, yeah, like, again, close your mouth, open your ears, like keep saying that, but that's, you know, I needed to hear unbiased opinions. Was this the right move for me? Would this opportunity come around again? Should I sit on it for a year and, um, you know, not do it? And here's the thing. I, I remember kind of like what pushed me over the edge of that is like, you've always wanted to have one thing that's yours. Cause I felt like, you know, as a multimedia journalist, I'm, you know, got my hand in a lot of different pots. It's a great thing, but to have ownership of a beat. And if I didn't take that job, and that team goes 13 and three to goes to the NFC championship that year, whoever they were, you know, would have hired instead of me was on TV. When I could have been seeing myself doing that, I would have hated myself, <laughs> would have hated myself. So I feel like you got to look at it that way. Be like, let's say that this job ends up, if I'm like waffling on it, well, what if this job ends up really being really good? Well, couldn't pass that up. So, I mean, to me, it was a no brainer. Like, and it was a lot all at once. Cause I was moving, like training camp was over trying to get there before the start of the season, just dive head first into it. Cause I had been gearing up for, for Raiders training camp that year. Cause they were supposed to be, I mean, they're terrible, uh, but they were supposed to be really good. Yeah. Um, and so it was just kind of like life in this industry hits you like really, really quick. It's stuff that you never even anticipate happening. Um, and it was so serendipitous that that happened that way. Like I just, I felt like that was a sign where mm-hmm. it was like, this is where your career will never be the same and never be the same for the better, which I'm so fortunate that they took a chance on me. Um, you know, I didn't have, I look again, I, ha- I don't have a traditional background, but then again, a lot of the hires ESPN has made recently in the NFL nation group, were not traditional beat writers pumping out a 22 inch, no a 22 inch game story and, you know, 15 inch column or 15 inch, uh, uh, notebook. Like, we do all of us, the recent hires, like I can think of, you know, handful, Lindsay Theory, Marcel Louis-Jacques, Brooke Pryor, um, you know, Cam Wolf started right before me. Uh, we all have multiple different things that we do. Like none of us were traditional newspaper men or women. We've all written, we've all done TV, we've all done podcasting, radio, like they are looking for in any, any industry, somebody who's versatile, mm-hmm. like, you know, there's people out there who do one thing really, really well and they can thrive on that and good for those people. But like, for me, I have to diversify. Otherwise I won't make it. Even, even now all these years in, like I still have to be on top of my game and constantly changing my game in order to survive. And I think that's just how you have to do it really in any industry at any age, but like, especially now when the landscape continually changes. I mean, it just goes back to, again, reiterating that point of everyone's career looks differently. And if it feels right to you to 
be a master of all trades. Don't let someone else tell you, no, you have to be good at one thing. What are you doing? Sticking your hand in all these different pots. You got to do it this way. Mm -hmm. Everyone's career looks different. And we brought up the NFC championship game, your first year covering the Vikings against the Eagles. I was in Philly for that game. What a game. But was that a moment for you where you had a feeling of, I made the right decision. Do you remember that game? Do you remember your energy that day? Because that, that was a, I imagine a big career moment for you. Yeah. It wasn't necessarily that game itself. Cause they lost in like really devastating fact. They completely yeah. collapsed because like right. the Minneapolis miracle was the week before. Like they had right. such an emotional hangover. Like they were doomed from the start. I think it was really the lead up time of going from Minneapolis miracle being on TV every single day that week being exhausted, but the good exhaustion where it's like, I just worked a 16 hour day. I have somehow I have to finish writing the story that's, you know, running tomorrow. And it's, it's already, you know, 9 PM. I've been up since 4 AM. Like, let me get up and let me nap for a couple hours and and get up and try it again. Like that grind, that, that ferocious beast uh, that it is like, I thrive in that. I think that that to me is some of my happiest times. And I just remember like that week being like having to turn down requests for interviews and stuff like that. Be like, no, sorry, I have to be on sports center tonight or sorry. I've got, you know, no, I've got to do NFL live. I can't do your radio interview at this time. I mean, it's not just like, you know, the, it's not touting. It's just kind of like one of these things where it's like, damn, a year ago, where were you a year ago? You were fighting for this opportunity. And I always think of like that phrase of like, you know, wishing, sometimes you, you, at one point you wished for where you were now, like you, shit may suck sometimes in whatever your predicament is, but at one point you wished where you, you wish to be where you are now. Mm-hmm. I think about that constantly because I mean, we've all dealt with the pandemic and being like our jobs changing and like the, you know, the whole thing. And it's like, man, this, this is hard, but I wouldn't trade this for anything because I worked my ass off to get here. I gave, I sacrificed so much just to be able to like do this at, at the level that I'm doing it. Um, I, I just, I couldn't see myself doing anything else. And, I, and I'm just so grateful. I never gave up and I, and I had a great support system. Like, you know, one thing I want to advocate for is, you know, paid internships so we can get more people who don't look like me, you know, privileged white kids from the suburbs. Right. Um, and I'm not, and I'm not discrediting my, my, my grind. Like I worked my ass off. I gave up my personal life to the nth degree to be able to pursue this. But I also had parents who, you know, who helped me. Like when I needed, I I never, I was never going to like starve. Right. Um, Which I think that's the issue that we run into in journalism. And yes, there's great programs like SJI and um, other, you know, entities NABJ does a good job, but we need to, the one thing I think that really I'd like to see become a thing are paid internships so we can get people into this industry who are from, you know, less fortunate communities who are people of color um, men and women that don't have to rely on, well, sorry, I can't take, I can't take this internship at this TV station because I have to work to support myself. Right. Like, that's one thing I think would be hugely important. And I'd love to, I want to collaborate with people on that. So I, you know, that's my goal for like the next couple of years. Like how do we create like a fund an endowment uh, to be able to give people like, okay, even if 
even if we can't change the industry and these shitty newspapers that like, you know, oh, sorry, can't afford to pay you because we're right. paying, you know, whatever, like can't even give you like gas money. Um, maybe there's an endowment or a fund that we can create that would su- supplement like, you know, an income or at least something. I mean, like I didn't make anything in my internships outside of my postgrad at, at um, the NCAA, which was $25,000 a year. Um, I didn't make any money. And like, I was fortunate that, you know, I mean, I worked in a Mexican restaurant to pay my gas money to get to Fox 59 in yeah. the summer, summer going into my senior year. Like, you know, that's, that's what I did. Um, and I know, I know people who have it worse than me. And like, it just, I, I think it unfairly weeds out um, candidates in our, you know, people who would be great at this field because they have to worry about the finances what and, you know, other industries, if you talk about unpaid internships, like, what are you talking about? Like, right. you know, <laughs> this right. doesn't exist in other places. That's one thing I want to see just as far as like the representation and seeing it, it change going forward. This year has been unprecedented for so many reasons. And every time I bring this up, I want to make sure that we are making note of the fact that yes, sports were affected, but sports was the least is the least important topic to discuss when talking about the pandemic. But nonetheless, your your job, your day-to-day life was was changed drastically, as were so many's. And so I wonder what you think about how this is going to affect sports journalism moving forward. I mean, for a lot of us, we went from covering players up close and personal. I know you are super talented at getting to know players in a very personal way, coaches in a very personal way. You've done so many features on mm-hmm. players and coaches' personal life. So how do you see this affecting that moving forward? And are you worried at all about this, unfortunately, putting more distance between you and players and coaches? Of course, you're, you're always going to be worried about that. And you have to, because you have to keep like, you know, applying pressure because leagues are, leagues don't want to, they don't want to give us access. They don't like, they want good stories to be told. Sure. But like, there's also like the real story that you have to tell. So I think honestly, you know, there are a lot of people who be like, Oh, like relax. Like you can do your job over zoom, zoom interviews, blah, blah, blah. This needs to be temporary and it's going to be upon reliant upon the pro football writers association of America uh, to do, uh, you know, their due diligence in making sure that eventually we get back in locker rooms and same with the other leagues. I just, you know, I'm speaking for what I'm a part of the organization I'm a part of, um, because this stuff is great in a pinch and hell it's great during the off season. I never want to hear another excuse from a team of, Oh, sorry, he's not back. Uh, he's on vacation or he's rehabbing or he's doing whatever. Like it'll be three months before you can talk to the player when they get back to the silly bullshit. Everybody has a phone. You can get on Zoom. Zoom is great in a pinch. And, and I honestly think throughout across industries, like we all need to go back to like, I think about this. Like there's several things in the pandemic that should stick. QR code menus, all about it. Um, people using hand sanitizer, like it's going out of style, all about it. But certain things need to change. We need, like, I need separation of church and state. Like I need to be able to go back to the facility to go back to my little cubicle to work from there. Cause I don't work well at home. I mean, this is normal off season for me anyways, being able to work from wherever. Um, but I need my work environment. People need to go back to the office. Now, if you can't make it in one day, cause your kid's sick, doesn't mean you've got to miss out on a meeting. It means that you can zoom in. And then when everybody else is back in person, having 
dialogue in between yourselves interpersonally, um, like you can still have everybody there, even if people can't be there in person. So I say all that to say, I think we'll be at a hybrid model this fall where it'll be like half in person, half not with the NFL. And what I mean by that is I don't think we will be back in a locker room until they can make sure everyone's vaccinated. But I do think we need to have in-person interactions, even if it's the same thing that you would get technically over Zoom, Mm -hmm. um, where you can't just walk up to a guy at his locker and shoot the shit and all that. But it is vastly important that we don't lose the in-personness of, um, you know, this job. It's critical to function. Like you can't, press conference style things are are only good for so much. And building sources, like I love going to the combine every year because I get to like interact with people that I don't, you know, typically get to see. And that's how you build sources. That's how you build connections. It's how you build the people you're able to like interact with. Um, and confirm news with like, if you got a tip, like you got, you know, this agent, you met him at such or him or her at such and such, like that's where that stuff comes from. We need to get back to that eventually. But I do think that the landscape, at least as it is right now, um, it's good in a pinch, but it is not the ultimate solution. We cannot, you know, zoom interviews are great and I'm glad that we're able to do it and see each other right now, but like, it cannot be what replaces what was, you know, you talked about earlier in our conversation, not having a 10 year plan, Mm -hmm. but I wonder for you if ESPN was a goal, if holding that ESPN mic was a goal and you know, you're shaking your head. No, which is, it wasn't, which is the craziest thing. I remember in college, people were like, do you want to work at ESPN one day? I'm like, I just want to work like at a place that like I'm valued. Yeah. I'm in a place that like lets me do what like, like lets me cover what I want. And I knew that from like a young age where it was never about the brand, which like I never had ESPN like dreams. I mean, yes, those four letters open up a lot of doors. I will be the first to tell you that, but it was never my ultimate goal of like, Oh my God, I need to work at ESPN someday. I need to be on sports center. Like it just happened, which I I know sounds like such a cliche, but it's so true. Like it happened. Like, and and to me, it was the greatest thing that happened for my career. Um, but I never sought out to do it. Mm -hmm. Like I, I would be lying if I said like, I, I sat in bed and dreamed every night I'd be at ESPN and, you know, talking with Sal Palantonio, uh, Mm -hmm. in a, in a three box hit, uh, never, never. I really didn't. Like, I just, I was focused on the work, which I know sounds like I'm trying to be all holier than thou. I'm just, I was just trying to make it however I could. And I never, I don't even know if I ever thought I was good enough to be at a place like ESPN, to be quite honest with you. In your career, what lesson has taken you the longest to learn? Because we love to obsess over people's highlight reels, but Mm -hmm. the reality is we've all been through it. We've all had to grind to get where we are. So for you, what lesson has taken you the longest to learn? I think don't stretch yourself too thin. Um, I even do it now where I feel like you overcommit. You want to be saying yes to everything because if you, you feel like if you don't, and I know I've preached this, like if you don't, someone else is going to pass you up. And that's a hard thing to stomach mm-hmm. when, you know, I'm, I'm competitive. I want to win. Um, in realizing that it's okay not to be first every time. I mean, yeah, you want to, that's the goal, but tell good stories. Like, don't worry about breaking news. Like it's really not the end all be all. Like, yes, we're all kind of in that industry, where breaking news is at the forefront, but, you know, tell a damn good story and be okay with maybe not getting 
being first on something or, you know, not overcommitting, focusing in so you can tell one damn good story instead of like a bunch of mediocre, you know, whatever, like really commit to your craft, read other people. That took me the longest thing to, to, to realize that like, it's okay to read other people. It's okay to read your competition. It's okay to read, you know, read everything. Don't just read sports. Like I've started, I've made a goal for myself to read three to four books a month. Um, I I did three in January. I'm almost done with my first for February. And some of it's not even football related. Hell, most of it's not. So, I mean, that to me is how I'm getting better in my craft. Um, And that, that's just me. Like that's my, that's took me a long time to learn how I really need to become a better reader before I can actually become a better writer. 100%. 100%. I love that. I invested in, or I, I changed my men- mentality on reading other people's work and just reading in general while I was in Mississippi. And it's totally changed my ability as a writer. What are you reading right now? Just curious. I am almost done with actually with Bruce Arian's book, The Quarterback Whisperer. Um, nice. Started it last week. Uh, I wanted to finish it at the time of the Super Bowl. And it's actually kind of cool reading it, like, because it ended with his career in Arizona. Um, and he thought that was going to be his last job. And so I was, you know, it was recommended to me by uh, someone I've been you know, working with for a couple of years now, Matthew Collar. He's been my podcast co-host forever. Um, and he read it and he's one of the, he's a you know, football mind that I really trust. Uh, so I read that. Um, I read Heavy by Kiese Lehman. He's actually from Jackson, Mississippi. It's a really, really unbelievable memoir. I think it was like the nonfiction, it earned some, un, like some, you know, some award from the New York times for like nonfiction memoir work in 2018. Um, I read the war of art, which is yeah. uh, by Stephen Pressfield. It's excellent. It's about why we like constantly slack off when we know our potential Yeah, um, and really about lighting a fire under you. And then I've just finished um, concrete rose uh, by Angie Thomas. She also, she's the one who wrote the book um, turned into a movie called the hate you give. And it's a precursor to that. So Fiction, nonfiction. She's from Jackson. Yeah, she's from. She she might be from the coast. Um, She's from Mississippi, though. I've kind of realized. I was talking with a friend about this. Like books I love, or like you know what I'm really into is is either not Southern romanticism, but like Southern culture. I just I love reading about Southern Black culture and just really Southern culture in general and the race divide um, and how different things are for different groups of people. I found that that's kind of just like my. I wouldn't say passion project, but that's what I'm really interested in reading. My last question for you, Courtney, before I let you go, this has been a great conversation. I'm so glad we did it, but what do you hope the future looks like for women in sports? I hope we're like, I hope it's where someday we outnumber people on our beats. Like I'm still the only woman on my beat in, in Minnesota, um, covering the Vikings. And I love my, I have a great beat. Like guys are awesome. I golf with a bunch of them. Like we all hang out kind of outside of work too, which is nice, but like be interesting to be like, Oh, like there's, you know, kind of, I want diversity and I want like, you know, quality. It'd be cool to see like an equal number of men and women on the same beat and not just, you know, I feel like the the people who are there every day, not just people who are like coming in and out as like TV people or uh, this person's only coming for the game, the day-to-day grind. Like I'd like to see three women beat writers, like one at each of the big papers, you know, one at ESPN, athletic. Like I want to see stuff like that where it's not just 
the anomaly has become, you know, becoming more of like, Oh, it's not a big deal. Like, you know, I know that there are a couple of beats out there. I know the Rams, um, that's a beat that has, you know, two of my good friends, Lindsay theory covers them for us. And then Jordan Rodriguez covers them for the athletic, mm-hmm. um, two, two powerhouses. And I'm just like, damn, I like seeing that. I really, really like seeing that. And legacy media too. I mean, like newspapers, they need to get into that too. Courtney. I am so glad you were able to come on Equal Play. Shout out to all our people down in Mississippi. Shout out to that connection because it's bonded us forever. For all of our listeners, thank you for coming on Equal Play. 